All right, so go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. When we were last in 1 Thessalonians 1 two weeks ago, we moved into the second of our three lessons from Paul's Thanksgiving that should shape our priorities. And that's the the priority of grace-motivated fruitfulness. The priority of grace-motivated fruitfulness in verse 3. And we started into that last time we were together and looked at the first of those. And we'll be continuing on into the second of those three areas of fruitfulness this week. And just a reminder, you know, we're looking at what's essentially a thanksgiving that Paul has given to the Lord regarding the Thessalonians that he's now sharing with them in writing in this letter. So, obviously, we've got to ask, okay, that's situationally specific. How do we kind of cross the bridge to our own world such that it has relevance to us? And I've explained that what we're doing is essentially noting that in this Thanksgiving that Paul's sharing, it's revealing his priorities, right? As I mentioned, what we thank God for often reveals our priorities, what's important. And it's not simply sort of happenstance that this reveals his priorities. Paul's actually intentional in sharing with them the things he's thanking God for because he wants to affirm these things in them. He wants to encourage them in the work God's already doing and encourage them to continue in these things he's affirming. So he's being intentional to hold this out, these qualities out as priorities for the Thessalonians and through the ages also for us. So we're taking it as a model for our priorities. So as we dig in here, let's just start by reading this paragraph, verses 2 through 7, and then we'll dig into verse 3. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 7. We give thanks to God always concerning all of you, as we mention you in our prayers. And we give thanks because we are incessantly remembering your work motivated by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your perseverance motivated by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ before our God and Father. And we also thank God for you because we know, brothers, beloved by God, your election or God's choice of you. We know that because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but it came to you in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what sort of people we were among you for your sake. And we know this because you became imitators of us and of the Lord by means of receiving the word in much affliction with joy provided by the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all who are believing in Macedonia and Achaia. So that's the paragraph, and verse 3 fits into this paragraph as being the first of two reasons Paul gives for giving thanks. We could say reasons or even like the content of his thanksgiving, right? There's two contents of his thanksgiving, two things he gives thanks for. The first one is found here in verse 3, and then the second one is found in verses 4 through 7. So we're just here in that first of those two reasons. 
And then the, that second reason will form lesson three in our outline whenever we get there. And of course, as Paul's identified these things as important, these are praiseworthy things in the life of a believer. These are things we want to get after. These are things we want to be thinking about. What does it look like for us to walk in those same graces? How can we emulate these? But if we're going to do that, we need to first press in to understanding these things. And that's what we want to do. I know last week we spent a, not last week, last time we were together on this topic, um, two weeks ago, we spent a considerable time in considering what it means to to have that work or um, service motivated by faith. And yet I want to take time on these things because it's so easy to see that, hear that, understand it, really even really understanding it, but not really have a lot of clarity about what it's going to look like to walk in that. And I want to help us get a lot of clarity. So as we walk out of here this week, we, we know exactly what it's going to look like to put these things into practice, to emulate these things. And as I mentioned last time, we took time to unpack the work motivated by faith category and to consider what that would look like in our own lives. And I hope that in the following week, as you kept thinking about that, particularly the truths that we need to have, that we need to be believing. If it's work motivated by faith, what do we need to be believing? We said it's really God and all of his promises, but we looked at specific promises that motivate our work, right? And so the goal is that as we keep thinking upon those things, meditating upon those things, believing those truths, that's the work of mind renewal, and the result will be work, it will be service, it will be good deeds. So, as I mentioned also, then, on the one hand, I want to encourage us to keep growing and excelling in these areas and yet as i look around the room like there's i myself want to give thanks to the lord for those very same graces in your lives because you are people who are doing those things well and yet as paul even says regularly in this letter excel still more right continue on persevere in those things thank the lord for the grace present in your life and then keep pressing on in those things. So, <clears throat> that's where we were last week, the faith-motivated work. And now we'll be moving into the second of these areas of grace-motivated fruitfulness, which is love-motivated labor, which you see there in the middle of verse 3. And so, just like two weeks ago when we looked at the first one, we're going to structure our consideration of this phrase similarly by just asking some questions. It'll be essentially the same questions. I've reordered them a little bit, but essentially the same questions. And remember, as we work through this and as we ask these questions, just stick with me, don't lose sight. I'm not simply here trying to satisfy some sort of exegetical curiosity. Our goal is that as we understand what it is that Paul's talking about, we will be able to emulate this. That's what we're pressing for. That's what's driving our inquiry here. We want to make these priorities a reality in our own lives. So, first question, what does Paul mean by labor? And I actually was able to fit all of these questions and the answers to them on one slide. So, you don't have to worry about me getting out ahead of you and suddenly that slide that you still had to read something on disappearing. It'll, it'll be here. First, I'm going to go through the three questions, and we'll come back through them and talk through them. So the first question, what does Paul mean by labor? Second question, 
What is the relationship between labor and love? What is the relationship between labor and love? And third question, what does Paul mean by love? And I guess there's really two questions there. How does love motivate labor? So three pretty obvious questions stemming from that phrase, labor of love. What does Paul mean by labor? What's the relationship between labor and love? What does Paul mean by love? And how does love motivate labor? And if we can answer these questions, I think we'll be well positioned to emulate the example of the Thessalonians. So starting back with the first one. What does Paul mean by labor? First, notice the relatedness between this term, labor, and that previous term, work. You guys track with me? There's these three parallel statements, work of faith, labor of love, perseverance of hope, and they're all kind of parallel. They have a parallel structure. So you see labor, and it's parallel to work or good deeds or whatever your translation says. Those are closely related terms, aren't they? Labor and work. What do you think is the difference there? What's, what's different about labor than about work or good deeds? Or, as you're, I, I do want a response here, not just rhetorical, but um, as you're thinking about that, you might even share if your translation has something, a different translation than labor, that's illuminating. Go ahead, Sean. <laughs> I really just wondered, like, what? How's it different than work? Than the previous term? Just thinking your own. Like, I'm not asking you guys to have to be Greek scholars and know that. Just in English, right? We're assuming the translators did a good job of translating these two terms. Go ahead. I guess to me, labor sounds harder than work because it makes me think of like sweating and like. Perfect. Really yeah, job. that's great. Go ahead, think of work like a work as an action. Yes. Like, like a one thing, one like something you're doing. Labor is like an ongoing process. Okay. An ongoing process. Okay. Yep. Go ahead. I know labor is characterized by effort. Yeah. And exertion. Whereas work can just be like, this is my work. Totally. I think you guys are all getting it. The difference there. Does anyone's translation have something different than labor? Everyone has labor. Okay. I think toil is another word we could possibly use that kind of picks up on some of those, some of those differences, right? So it's basically work. Labor is essentially work that has an added nuance of it being difficult, right? There being some cost involved. There being some discomfort or hardship associated with the work. So any work could be a labor, right? But not every... Work is labor. Every labor, I guess we could say, is some kind of work, though. <clears throat> okay, so here is a definition of labor. Let me give you just two definitions. They aren't really different. My point is just trying to give you two different, the way two different dictionary writers have, uh, have tried to craft their definition. So I think it will be illuminating to see it from two different angles. Here's the first one. Activity that is burdensome. And this now, these are definitions not just of the English word labor, but specifically of the Greek word that Paul used here. Activity that is burdensome. And then here's another definition. Hard work implying difficulties and trouble. 
hard work implying difficulties and trouble. So you guys were on, on the right track. Our translators did a good job with the word labor. We can kind of get the, get the idea of what this word's referring to, and you guys were able to discern the differences just in English between labor and just generic work. Some other things I wrote here is that it's distinct from work and that this word labor kind of implies intense expenditure of energy in the work. It places more focus on the cost involved in the work. We might translate as toil. It's like a laborious toil. So first, so we're thinking through this, this model that's being set before us, that it's commendable for believers to be engaged in this labor. Let's just think about a real quick implication here that sort of addresses something we might be tempted to believe. Our service... Our good deeds aren't supposed to be limited to what's convenient. Isn't that tempting sometimes to think, yeah, we'll, we'll engage in serving other people when it's convenient. If it's not convenient, then sure, that's not something we should be doing. And yet the very use of this term indicates that no, sometimes doing the right thing isn't convenient. It does involve cost. It does, it's a burden to us even sometimes. It, it feels that way. Now, we'll, we'll consider, like, how does this now get connected to the motivation being love, right? Does sometimes burden and love seem like they're contradictory things? <laughs> but we'll, we'll tease that out, because I think this is like real life. This is everyday serving of people. It feels burdensome. It's motivated by love. How do those things come together? It's a, what, what's going on here, and the, the implication is that it's good and commendable that in your service you will stretch yourself beyond what is comfortable. You're willing to make sacrifices for the sake of serving others. That's almost to be expected, not just the unusual, but to be expected. So let's just tease this out a little bit here. First, we see this in the life of Paul. Paul wasn't just commending something in the Thessalonians he knew nothing about, even in this very letter. So take your Bibles. You're already in 1 Thessalonians 1. Flip over to chapter 2. It's always so presumptuous to assume that we know the pagination of people's Bibles and speak of flipping when they may not need to flip. Maybe they're already on that page. Maybe they need to flip two pages. <laughs> so 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 8 and 9. 1 Thessalonians 2, 8 and 9. Look at what Paul says here. Here he's talking about his ministry among them. And we read Paul writing... Because we, that's Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, all three authors of this letter, because we care deeply for you in this way, we were well pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, as in the message, but also our own lives, because you have, been, you have become beloved to us. We were pleased to share with you our very lives, Paul says. Take note, he's basically saying, I didn't just come to and deliver a message and then be gone, but we gave ourselves, our time, our energy, our safety even, we put on the line that we might give of our whole lives to you. That's a good example of labor, isn't it? This kind of toilsome effort, it involves a cost. It wasn't convenient for them, but they did it nonetheless. Then look in verse 9, we read here, For you recall, brothers, our labor, same word, our labor in hardship, 
how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So he explains what this labor looks like. You know, we, as I say, for you recall, brothers, our labor and hardship. And now what does that look like? He says, how working night and day. So the illustration from Paul's own life here of labor is long hours, essentially, right? Working night and day. It seems like contextually when he says so as not to be a burden to you, what he means is if we were to spend all of our time sharing the gospel with you, how would we eat? So we worked by day to feed ourselves, and we worked by night to share the gospel with you. And the, the obvious implication is there was little time left for rest, right? Um, but that was the toil he gladly undertook for the sake of sharing the gospel with them. So even as we think about you know, as we, we, this term, labor, what does that look like? What kind of toil is involved? Well, right here, one of the costs involved in toil is the cost involved in working long hours, right? That sometimes looks like giving up hobbies. That sometimes looks like giving up sleep. Gives up, <laughs> involves various things, right? But working long hours is obviously one of these involved, and we can assume the same was true for the Thessalonians as they're being commended. We aren't told exactly what they were doing, but some sort of labor of this sort is what they were engaging in, and Paul is commending them for that. I don't have this up here, and I'm not going to spend time on it, but if you want to see just another example where Paul uses this same term several times, it's in this list of basically costs, sacrifices he paid for the sake of ministering to others. And you'll find that in 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 33. So just 11 verses there, 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 33. But a helpful list, and like I said, I'm not going to go there right now and work through that because it's 11 verses and try to talk through it all, but gives you an idea of the kind of cost Paul was willing to pay. <clears throat> all right, so some other examples of this. As I thought through, you know, what does this look like? How can we be helped to get our minds around what this looks like? I spent some time <laughs> thinking through like significant Christians that we might have biographies about, right? Like Christian missionaries. And so um, one biography some of you guys have been reading, some of you who might have gone to the Devoted Conference um, on George, John, I don't know whether you say Patton or Peyton, but John Patton or Peyton, however you prefer to pronounce it. Um, some of you guys have been reading that biography, and uh, so I looked through, got some examples from there, and then also from Adoniram Judson, if you have never read Courtney Anderson's biography on Adoniram Judson called To the Golden Shore, wow, that is a, it's a tough read because he lived a really hard life, buried multiple wives and multiple children, um, all for the sake of bringing the gospel to this place. Uh, and so a hard, hard biography to read, but a good example of a man who persevered for decades after decades in ministry there. So as I went there, looked at some of these things, and then I decided to scrap all of that. Because how do you put that into practice this week, right? Like, few of you guys are considering that kind of thing this week. So that might be nice. That might sound like some good examples. But what I want to think through is what does this look like for us this week? How do we take the obvious, natural, reasonable steps this week to labor, motivated by love for others, 
that would be honoring to the Lord and good for his church. So I just sat back and started thinking through what are some of the things that we see people doing around us? Right away, my mind went to, this was last evening, someone who was here late at night, a young man preparing to teach Adventure Club tomorrow, and just thought, there's someone who just loves these kids, wants to be well prepared to teach Adventure Club, and so here he is working at that. That's an example of labor. There's the men who arrive an hour early on Sunday mornings to prepare the coffee for us and the other Sunday school classes. There are the ladies of this class who organize baby showers and set up for them and tear down and those kinds of things you guys just, you ladies, just signed up for. (laughs) That's good. It's commendable. Those of you who give your time to prepare and deliver meals, that takes time. There's also financial cost involved in that. I think of the single ladies who help care for the children of others, giving of their time and the, the unique position the Lord's put them in, using that for the sake of serving the body. Those of you who host and lead small groups make sacrifices. It's not just the time, but there's usually time spent beforehand making sure there's food or some kind of food sign up and the house is clean and those types of things. There's, there's a cost there. Some of you work on Don Schnarr's team of volunteers resetting the ministry center, setting up all those chairs. And I've seen you guys here coming often late on Saturday nights, giving up your Saturday night to help restack all the chairs so that those, however many there are, 470 chairs can be set up on Sunday morning, all in nice, neat rows with the proper distance between them. There's work involved. Um, Those of you who give of your time to prepare breakfast for the new members class. You guys aren't going to that. You guys are members already, and yet you take time on a Saturday morning to prepare breakfast, prepare food, to make sure that's available. I think, as I was just writing this out, trying to think through recent examples, I thought of a lady here on Friday afternoon, a busy lady with, she's a wife, a mother, who was here, though, meeting with another church member, another lady who's also a wife and mother, and who's just struggling in her heart to respond rightly to the pressures that come from being a parent and just wanting to love her with the truth, help her think through what it looks like to walk faithfully. She's got a lot to do, but she's giving up time on a Friday afternoon to make sure that she's here um, and able to be invested in that way. And then as I even talked with her afterwards, she had like notes where she'd been thinking all week long about how can I best help this person and, and reading additional things to make sure she could do that. I think of the men I often find here at the church at 6 a.m. meeting with other men for discipleship. throughout all kinds of rooms. You can come here at 6 a.m. on any day, and it's likely at least one room here has someone in it, um, some couple people, meeting for the sake of discipleship. Those are all, there's sleep that's given up for those types of things. There's various costs involved. Those are just mundane things, right? Those are the things that many of you can probably think, yeah, I've done that. That's, I, I saw, found myself in that list. That's wonderful. I want you to be commended. And you may even find, I don't think of the toil. You probably do sometimes think of the toil. <laughs> but, you know, just it's, yeah, that's what we do. That's how we love other people. And so those are just a variety of ways. Those are all examples of laboring to serve the church body. All of these cost time and energy, but they're good examples of everyday labor. So let's just think through the implications here. Let us not be merely, can I say, fair-weather 
participants in the mission of Christ. By that I mean participating in the mission of Christ, contributing to Christ's church when it's convenient to do so, when it's easy to do so. Let us, like Paul and like the Thessalonians, be committed to the mission of Christ, which is going to mean being committed to the toil, being committed to the cost that is involved in that. Let's make another connection for us. There's a reason that when Christ called people to follow him, he called them to do what? Yeah, take up their cross and follow him. Obviously, that looks ahead to the the possibility of persecution, right? But there's all kinds of toil involved. I could have gone through many examples of our own Lord who, who gave of himself in many ways for the sake of serving others. So to summarize this first question, what does Paul mean by labor? The answer is hard work, implying difficulties and trouble. Now let's move on to the second question. What's the relationship between labor and love? So if you've heard all that about labor and it feels weighty, like, that's just exhausting. I don't see, there's like, it's dutiful. We're going to now move into the motivation, right? The motivation here is love. It's not just dutiful. It's something that's motivated by love. But what's the relationship? We have labor of love. That's a somewhat ambiguous phrase. But it seems that the the love is what motivates the, the labor, The labor is expended because of love. So that's all I'm going to say about that one. Love motivates the labor. And now let's move into the third question, which is where we'll finish up our time. What does Paul mean by love and how does love motivate labor? So just a couple of things we can address here. First of all, the object of this love. Notice Paul doesn't say... Who is the one being loved? It's pretty clear that the one doing the loving is the same person doing the laboring, right? Labor of love, whoever's doing the loving or laboring is also the one doing the loving. They're the subject of the love. But who's the object of the love? Who's the one being loved in this case? What are the most obvious options you can think of? Are you guys track with my question? No. When, there's, when we talk about love, us loving, who are we loving, right? If we're to be laboring because we're loving, who or what are we loving? Yeah, I mean, ultimately so God or Christ is one very obvious option, right? Good. What's another option? Others. Others, people of the church. Yes, those are the two most obvious options. That we're being motivated to labor, to do toilsome work because of love for either Christ, God slash Christ, or others. So it's going to be helpful as we think through this to sort out which of those it is. It could be both, right? I mean, it's like a third option. It could be both. So I, I was just curious, and I spent some time just working through this language in Paul in seeing the way that, especially when he associates it with things like faith, and then obviously we've got here, um, work of faith, labor of love, endurance of hope. Faith, hope, and love. Or faith, love, and hope in this order, right? But that's a familiar Pauline triad, group of three. And so when Paul says this, uses those three together, does he ever indicate who that love is for? And it's always interesting because you've got faith at the beginning, and the obvious object of the faith is God. And then you've got at the end, hope 
and clearly explicitly here, the object of the hope is Jesus Christ. So it seems like, well, we can just kind of fill in the middle one with God or Christ, right? But as I worked through all the uses, particularly of this love language, it seems almost certain that what Paul has in view here is other believers. Paul certainly speaks sometimes with this very language of loving believers loving God and believers loving Christ. But it seems like in this type of a context, what he has in mind are other others, and we'll see specifically, most likely, other believers. So a whole lot of info on this. I tried to boil down for you guys. What's the most important data that suggests that? I don't, I don't want to burden you with a whole bunch of evidence, right? Some of you guys are probably content just to take my word for it. Like, let's just move on. But let me just give you like a few, what are the most obvious ways you can see this? So in two other of Paul's introductory thanksgivings, by that I mean he's opening a letter and giving thanks for his recipients with that, he puts together faith and love, but in both of these, he actually explicitly says who that love is for. So go first to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we find in the very same context, a thanksgiving at the beginning of a letter, and a thanksgiving in which Paul's reasons for thanking God for them is their faith and their love. So you see a lot of parallels here. But here Paul specifies that the object of the love is other believers. First, or 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, begin in verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. You see that? Even though it's coming right on the heels of faith, which is clearly directed toward God, he's perfectly content to switch when it comes to the love and have the object of the love being other believers. It's actually interesting, notice verse 4, he then mentions perseverance, which also shows up in this, our group of three here. He says in verse 4, Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions. So very similar context, but here the ambiguity about who the object of the love is, is removed. We can see it's other believers. <clears throat> one other passage, Colossians 1, 3-5. So flip to Colossians 1. This is the only other passage I'll take you to as evidence for this. Colossians 1, 3-5. Notice where we are, the beginning of the first chapter of a letter. So we're still in the opening. And like Paul regularly does, he starts with thanksgivings for the recipients. So very similar context. And again, he's thanking them specifically for their faith, hope, and love. And here he specifies the object of the love. So beginning in verse 3 of Colossians 1, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. See that? Then notice verse 5, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. We have those three things together again. So that's just two pieces of evidence, two of the stronger pieces of evidence, albeit, that I think suggest that if we want to know what does Paul have in mind here so we can emulate this, he has in mind love for other believers. It's not like super critical we nail that down rightly because Paul also in other places affirms the appropriateness of love for God, right? 
But if we want to really know what does Paul mean in this context, it seems like he means love for other believers. All right. So with that question, who's the object of this love? And I've written here other people, and more specifically, it is likely other believers. You might notice in both of those passages, he's more specific than just people. It's believers, others in the church that are in view as the object of the love. Then let's next talk through what does Paul mean by love here? What is the meaning of love that Paul has in view here? I'm going to give you a definition, and then I'm going to talk through it with you, okay? We're going to go kind of on a little, uh, what do we, how do I describe this? A little um, journey and an exploration regarding the meaning of love. Sounds a little ambitious for 15 minutes, but... No, let's, let's hope it doesn't become like that. Though it is a good topic, though, right? Worth that, but no, we're going to try to keep this constrained. So here's my definition, okay? A warm regard for an interest in another that is often expressed in tangible action for their good. As we talk through this, I'm going to kind of talk through various potential qualms with this. So if, you, if you're feeling the urge to be critical, like, hey, I don't like that or I don't like that, that's fine. Think that. And we'll talk through that. It'll be good for you to engage with this. That's basically what I'm encouraging you to be. Be willing to engage with this. Is this helpful? Is, are some pieces not necessary? Are some pieces dangerous because they include things that shouldn't belong there? Notice, though, two important elements here. For one thing, there's a disposition Right? I wrote a warm regard for an interest in another. We might call that, to use like really basic terminology, a feeling. A warm regard for an interest in another. And then there's also an action, often expressed in tangible action for their good. All right, so here we go. Think with me, just thinking through how we define love. On the one hand... It, what seems to be like the implicit understanding of love in our world seems to be almost entirely focused on a feeling of which we are a victim. Meaning like it happens to us and that's really all. We're never like the, the agent of the love. <clears throat> Where it's victim or it's, we, we aren't, right? It's just kind of the way it is. To borrow Jesus' analogy for something he wouldn't support, it's like the wind. You can't see it, but you can feel it, right? You, don't really, you can't really describe love, but you can feel it when it hits you. And you can't control it. You're simply the victims. If there's no love, like there's no way you can generate the love. You can't, the wind, right? You can't make the wind start blowing. So in this sense, there's many ways in which the cultural understanding love is kind of like the wind. If the wind isn't blowing, there's nothing you can do about it. So in this way, the Cultural understanding of love seems to be a powerful feeling that affects us, but which we can't just drum up. Now, most of us have been taught that this is a problematic explanation of love, right? Is that most people's experience? At some point, you've been taught that's not helpful to make it totally feelings. <clears throat> and that's good that we've been taught that because this understanding of love is a problem. But if that's incorrect, we need to replace it with a better understanding of love, with a right understanding. And it seems that commonly we're told love is something you do. It's about making sacrifices to love others. Are you guys tracking me here? 
Does this sound familiar? Is this like, am I alone on this journey, or are you guys <laughs> able to sympathize? Okay, good. Can, can I, can yeah. Sure. Is, are you saying love is not necessarily a feeling, it's a decision? That's kind of the, the, the correction, right? The correction we're often given is it's a sacrificial action, not a feeling, right? <clears throat> um, and, and by so doing, by defining it that way, we've successfully responded to and corrected the misunderstanding that we're merely victims of love because we've defined it now as an act of our will, right? It's something we do. We can do it. We don't have to do it. It doesn't matter how we feel. We can do it. So we can still love. And we therefore bypass the, the problematic concern that someone says, I'm simply not going to love that person because I don't feel it. And that's a major advance, I think, and a major improvement. Major improvement. But I think most of us sense that something is lacking in a definition that merely equates love with self-sacrificial service. If that's all it is, if it's synonymous with that. We sense that love needs to include some kind of warm regard for the other person. Yes, sacrificial service for a person is a good expression of love, but it seems that, can we say it seems like it ought to include something like a feeling? So let me just try to come up with an example here. Maybe I should put Cody on the spot and have him come up with an example. So we're coming up to February 14th, right? February 14th is often associated with meals, dinners between people who are in love. Is this right? Am I getting the date right? Is it February 14th? <laughs> good, good. <laughs> so let's suppose Cody were to say to Mindy, sorry, Cody, I didn't plan to put you on the spot like this, but Cody says to Mindy, you know, there's a lot of work to be done around the farm. I really could use a long day, but I really want to sacrificially love you because that's what Christ expects of me. So I made some reservations for us to go to dinner, and I know you'll appreciate that I'm making sacrifices to, to do this for you. Well, Mindy say, oh, that's wonderful. I'm so glad you love me. Maybe sarcastically, but not, not genuinely, right? It seems like something's missing. So as you try to wrestle through this, how do you correct what seems to be kind of an, an overcorrection, making it totally self-sacrifice without then going into the other ditch of making it totally feeling? You guys still with me? Okay. It seems like if sacrificial love is appropriate and needs to be there, how can we include some measure of the feeling piece to it? The, the warm regard, as I said here. And it seems that maybe we just need to say, I'm going to propose, we just need to say that, yes, what Cody was going to do, maybe not helpful to verbalize it that way, but even if he's not feeling it, acting in what he knows is good to do, right? The Lord commands me to love my wife, so I'm going to make sacrifices to do this, that is love. That's a loving response. But maybe it's a bit of a minimal form of love, right? Maybe there's like a, a better, higher, truer form that would include the warm regard. And that is an ideal to be pursued. That is to be preferred. And so just to re rephrase this, the tension I think we feel, and I'm saying we, assuming you guys are still on the journey with me, is that if we're expected to love, it must not be something that simply happens to us. It must be something we can do by an exercise of our will. And yet, if we include feelings in the definition, or even something that sounds more carefully worded, like warm regard, if we include something like that, we're going to threaten it being something we can choose to do, since we can't control our feelings. 
You still with me? Okay. I think the solution is found in correcting the notion that we can't direct our feelings. Does that sound ambitious? To suggest that maybe we could and have some influence over our feelings and not simply feel our feelings? Let's work this out with a fictitious, this really is entirely fictitious. I promise you, I didn't even have anyone in mind, okay? Believe me. With a fictitious object of our love. A church member who's obnoxious and hard to love. Okay? You don't need to picture a particular person. If you do, okay, but just go, with it. go down this path with me. This is the kind of person you'd prefer to avoid on a Sunday morning. As Mark Hager would say, it's an extra grace person. They require a little extra grace. <laughs> now, the worst way to handle this is the worldly way. If I don't love that person, there's nothing I can do about it. That's all there is to it. A much better way, a much better way, I really want to emphasize that, a much better way is to emphasize that love is an act of the will and choose to sacrificially serve that person. Seek them out at church, talk with them, ask them good questions, listen well, meet the needs you recognize they have. That is great. That really does honor the Lord. I don't want to like cast any shade on that. That's, that's a wonderful thing. But I think we can go a step further in terms of like the ideal way to respond to them. We can encourage a warm regard in ourselves by meditating on truth of what God says about that person. What does God say about that person? When I really believe that, it should cultivate in me a warm regard. That person, however obnoxious they are, is an image of God, created for his glory. That person has value for that reason, regardless of how obnoxious they are. God loved and continues to love that person so much that Christ gave his life for them. They are one of Christ's precious sheep, having been justified, forgiven, pardoned by him, reconciled to him, adopted as his child. God has transformed them in the inner man level, starting his new creation work in them. Christ delights in that obnoxious church member. I hope you're even beginning to feel like it just feels inappropriate as you led all these truths to even refer to this person as obnoxious, right? Christ delights in them and wants them to mature into a useful servant, and Christ intends for us as his followers in the same local church to play a part in helping this precious sheep to grow to maturity. Can you see how as we begin to meditate on those truths, believing them to be true and working to remind ourselves of them and to view this person in light of these truths, that our regard for this person will likely grow warmer. It will likely begin to feel less dutiful to do all those things I mentioned earlier of sacrificial love. It may not happen quickly, the improvements in your warm regard for them may not be consistent, maybe ups and downs. But to the extent we meditate on these truths, we will grow in warm regard for this person. And in this way, our love for them, which started in this sort of minimal form of love, an anemic form of cold sacrificial service, which I'm still willing to call love, 
will grow into a warmer, more true and perfect love. So the point is just that through mind renewal, the Spirit will produce warm regard for all those whom God expects us to love. All right. Having walked through that, I hope that was helpful in a 15-minute little aside about a complex, perennially philosophized about topic of love. Does anyone have any other comments or concerns? That's okay. Concerns are okay. About this this year, my definition? Go ahead, Cody. Yeah, I was just thinking, like, I tried to summarize this with 800 pages of desiring God and what I don't desire God. Yep. You can just, like, throw in the word there, love, like loving God and what I don't love God. Yep. Like, what, what do I do about it? Yeah. And, like, fundamentally, it's exactly what you're saying. Like, okay, when I don't desire him, I'm still going to, like, try and pursue effort and remember all of the good gifts that he's given me. Yes. By the way, he's called me to do this out of obedience yep. and obligation, and I think at the end of the day, like it stirs it to be motivating to us to do that. Totally. And like taking how we love God and not applying that to other people. Yep. Um, That's great. It's, a, it's just a weird mix. Like, oh, well, they wronged me. Well, I wronged God like infinitely. Yes. More unquantitatively more. Yep. And yet I'm I'm gonna show that type of love to that person. That is one. Yep. Totally. That's helpful. Very helpful. Actually, John and I were talking about this this morning. I was sharing with him uh, a previous pastor used to say, it is my delight to serve the Lord, and when it's not my delight, it's my duty. <laughs> and that was helpful, because you start with what's like the best motivation, right? It's my delight. But when that fails, I still have a duty, right? And it, but it still holds out that just dutiful service without delight isn't the idea. We don't want to be content with that. We want to pursue that delight by mind renewal. So we see this particularly clearly. I'm going to have to cut this short a little bit. We see this, this, this idea of the warm regard piece and interest in another that might make us feel a little bit uneasy. I hope after talking that through it doesn't make you feel uneasy. But that might make us feel a little bit uneasy. I think that piece is essential here because notice... In that phrase, our phrase, labor of love, the action piece, often expressed in tangible action for their good, is already stated in the labor piece, right? It's a labor of love. It seems like in this context, the, the primary focus needs to be on that warm regard piece. Are you guys trapped with me? So I think I want to talk that through so you guys can see the importance of that there. But then also another really important piece to take away is not just feeling like, wow, I've got to have warm regard, and I feel like a victim of my feelings. I don't know how to get there. Hear me out. Mind renewal, right? What's true? As we meditate on the truth and believe it, our feelings will begin to change. Feelings aren't easy to change. There's a lot of things that are easier to change than, than our feelings, like our actions, right? Our actions, we can like make an instantaneous decision, and it changes. Feelings, it's almost like they're... Um, What's the best term here? There's a lag, right? You start correcting, but it takes a little, bit, a little while for it to finally act. Maybe have many of you guys driven boats before? Like sometimes a boat, you start turning the steering wheel, it takes a little while for it to begin to turn. There's a little bit of a lag there compared to like an automobile. It's somewhat similar to that, right? You can't instantaneously change it, but by faith, you continue to work to renew your mind, believing the truth, and there will begin to be a change in your feelings. All right, I'm going to just 
the hard stop for the sake of respecting your time. <laughs> and then we will um, finish this up next week and jump into the perseverance of hope. Any questions, comments? I don't have Jed here to pick on. <laughs> no? Okay. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and I thank you for the privilege that we have of not simply being on our own, following you with your word, but with one another. I thank you for these dear brothers and sisters who are all striving to honor you with the best of our efforts in faith, and that we can do this together. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to grow in this area of labor motivated by love. Help us to think upon these things we've learned and use those things to grow us in this this week. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.